And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the bunker. It is Friday, November 4th. And where does the time go, right? The year is just flying by. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. Glad to have all of you with us. We are broadcasting live to uh, Odyssey, YouTube, Facebook, and one of these days we may uh, we may get our numbers up so we can stream to Rumble. That's coming. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe by the beginning of the year we'll get to a hundred a uh, hundred subscribers over on Rumble so we can uh, we can broadcast there. We are also on various podcast players around the web, so you can find this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Although I do want to encourage you to check out the live video every now and again because we do sometimes have photographs and video and some stuff that you just can't experience fully in podcast form. But that's okay. If you want to listen to us as a podcast, you're more than welcome to. Of course, you can always send us comments live from the bunker at sci fi for is the email address. You can leave comments on everywhere uh, where you can find this show. Uh, give a shout out to the people who are listening to us in Germany and U- the UK, Ireland, the Philippines, Australia. Good to have all of you with us. And with that, take a breath and now we get going here. We have uh, an interesting, interesting premise on today's show. It is uh, a new book uh, called Time Lock. It's, uh, it's an idea about, uh, a new, a new, uh, form of, of incarceration, I guess you could say. And, uh, joining us to talk about it, Peter Burke, who, uh, wrote the book with his father, uh, who was a writer in television. Peter, welcome to the program, sir. Glad to have you with us. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be with, with you. So let me let me get the Reader's Digest version of the of the book here from you. How would you describe this uh, in the elevator pitch? It's uh, set ten years in the future. Crime is rampant throughout the country. Prisons are grossly overcrowded, and uh, technology is developed that uh, cellular acceleration technology. It's hugely controversial, of course. But the idea is to instantly age prisoners, not all of them, but select prisoners, the number of years of their sentence. So 30 years could take you three minutes and you're three decades older. And it's meant to be the ultimate scared straight deterrent. But the whole premise of the book is uh, what happens if, if you're innocent. And that's that's really where it starts. And that's where it takes us following one innocent young man who is caught up in this nightmare. So uh, let me ask you this then, where did the idea start? Because you and your father wrote this um, and and he's, he was a writer on a number of different television shows, Columbo, The Rockford Files. Uh, and did, was this something that y'all just kind of came up with on your own, just looking at things that were going on 
in the real world or did this flow out of a different idea from something else? Well, I have to give credit where it's due. It was really entirely my dad's idea. This is probably 15 or so years ago. And we all thought, wow, that's really cool. And he had done some science fiction and and even some of the non-science fiction shows he worked on, like Mission Impossible, had a sci-fi kind of tinge to them. So his mindset was very much in that world. And we thought it was a great idea. So he and I wrote a screenplay together. This whole thing started as a script. But unluckily for us, is uh, even though we were pleased with how the script turned out, uh, you know, it was a time where big budget movies uh, weren't really being made unless they were remakes or sequels or comic book <laughs> adaptations. So our, even with my dad's great reputation and credits, we just couldn't get it off the ground. Um, and then he sadly passed away about six years ago. And when I was sitting home, like everybody else during the beginning of COVID, I thought, I'm going to go crazy if I don't have some major project to work on. And I thought, wow, if I could novelize our script, it might take off as a book, but it also would be a way to honor my dad's memory. And that's exactly what happened. I was very lucky. I got aligned with a great publisher, Ingram Elliott, and they really nurtured it. So it's, it's been fun. So what kind of process was involved in getting this thing changed over? Because scripts are a very specific format. Um, even even the difference between television and, and film formats are, are different enough. But then you get into adding all of the pros because all of the visuals, everything, you know, now you can do internal study, internal dialogue, internal monologue, and that sort of thing. And I've just started reading, you're in first person, present tense, at least in the beginning of this. Was that a conscious choice to sit there and say, I'm going to do this as if it's happening right now, even though it's set 10 years in the future? Uh, very much so, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a, it's a, it's a way I like to write. Uh, I don't fancy myself a you know a, a great writer. My dad was a great writer. I'm you know serviceable, but uh, you know I thought if if I try if this is such a story about one man's in, internal struggle. I mean, he's suddenly 20 years older. He's on the run for his life. Uh, everything is happening to him at once. How do you describe that in prose? Even if even if I was a better writer. So I thought the only way to really do this is is first person. Uh, plus, it frees you up to to really tell what's going on in that character's mind, where dialogue is always a little stilted because we watch what we say. And I didn't want it to be all third person. So it worked for me. And and also one of the reasons I I think it it helped uh, is that I didn't want this story to be overly heavy. I mean, it's a dramatic action sci-fi story and a lot of terrible things happen to him. And uh, the lead character, Morgan, you know, he's he's almost killed every five pages. But but I thought this guy has to have a self-deprecating sense of humor and, and see things in a sort of humorous light as something, you know, I mean, the entire MASH series was based on, on that kind of concept. Right. I, I'm not the first one to do it. But he tries to inject humor into his observations. So that helped flesh it out 
quite a lot. So it's just a style I, I like. It's not everybody's favorite, but it, it helped me a lot. Now, as you're fleshing out the script into a novel form, uh, you know, you you don't have the opportunity to sit and talk with your dad about it in terms of, in terms of changing things up. But did you have conversations back in the day when when you were first coming up with the idea for the screenplay that translated and found its way into the book? You know, the the conversations and the notes that you had when you first came up with this idea. How much of that were you able to incorporate in the book form of the story? A great deal. I thought, you know, I have my dad's terrific writing. He wrote the you know, the majority of the screenplay. Uh, I contributed a good amount, but, you know, he he was the, the head writer without question. So I had a lot to work with. I mean, I didn't have to make that much up. I did when I wrote a sequel to the book. That's entirely new. And then I wrote a few others after that that are intended to be part of this series. But I had so much good dialogue and, and even good prose because in a screenplay, you know, you want to describe the setting or the scene. Or And my dad, even though nobody would see that other than the producers or whoever read the script, he put a lot of effort into even the descriptive parts, the, you know, um, the non-dialogue. So there was a lot to work with and I just elaborated a bit and put my voice into it, especially as I said, with some of the light, more lighthearted aspects. Now uh, there, there has been of late, uh, I'd say maybe the last five years or so, especially, uh, this this notion, and we've seen it in the comics industry. We've seen it with some of the some of the novels that are being published these days. Um, there's a there's a, a complaint in the in the readership that a lot of these comic books are just being written as the next Netflix pitch, or you have you know we've we've had a number of news items where. There's a there's a book that's just getting announced and it hasn't even hit the shelves yet, but it's already got a movie deal. You're coming at it from a completely different direction in that the the movie script was already written and now you're coming in and doing the novel. So let's let's project forward a little bit. Let's say that the novel takes off. Are you ready to flip it back to a screenplay if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I think I think this would make a good little action picture on Netflix. What do you do then? Well, I certainly can't deny that that's, that would be wonderful and that we've thought about it. And that's one of the reasons Ingram Elliott, you know, embraced the project because they, they are looking for those kind of opportunities too. And, and everybody thought it's very cinematic. So I have, I did go back and rework the script to better match the the novel. There wasn't that much to do. The biggest change, honestly, was that in doing the whole book in first person, uh, obviously you can't cut away like you can in a screenplay to another setting. You know, so we had a lot of scenes in the screenplay that are in the Oval Office, for example, or that just take us away from our main character. Right. And I couldn't do that and still keep the first person. So I had to rework some of the novels, some of the script. Uh, and then, as I said, there are actually four other novels yet to come in this series. And two of them already have screenplays also. So there's 
there's a lot of material if anybody wanted to you know take a look at the at it at, from a limited series or a movie point of view that'd be great because that's how it started but if if that never happens uh, as corny as it sounds jason i swear it's from the heart you know uh if this book sells five copies or five million it's the it, nothing will take the place of feeling like i've really honored my dad and to be able to be talking about him you know i loved him as a father i loved him as a writer to be able to be talking about him in you know 2022 um uh, and give you know shine a little spotlight on on his extraordinary talent is so rewarding for me you know and so that's really honestly the main the main goal is as corny as i said <laughs> that sounds yeah, now it's it's perfectly understandable i mean i can understand the the idea of legacy especially when you've got somebody that's no longer around you want to you want to do right by them when when you're talking about sequels and you've got plans for additional stories it, are you basing any of that on world building that you did with your dad is that is there a lot of are cuz when when you come up with an idea for a script there's a lot of backstory there's a lot of a lot of character stuff that you know your show bibles and your your production book and and everything in research and that kind of thing and then you project forward now because you're setting yourself in the future you're dealing with technology that doesn't exist and you know you're you're having to i imagine research you know the the justice system and incarceration and and how that kind of thing works how much of this was you know looking at modern era what's going on with i mean summer 2020 we had all these riots crimes up you know inflation's up all, all of these things going wrong and today did any of that make it into the book or was that stuff already in the story that was already in the story to be honest um i didn't really want to delve too much into although the story does take us right up to the white house and especially the sequel involves the the next president it really wasn't based on current events or anything. I mean, again, the original story was written some 15 years ago. So uh, I think, but in terms of building it out and, and the sequels, I mean, what happened was we certainly never thought in terms of sequels to the screenplay because we couldn't even get the, the first one off the ground. So right. we certainly weren't presuming anyone would want a second one. Um, but as I mentioned, in order to, before I hooked up with Ingram Elliott, I thought nobody's going to buy a 180-page, even lengthening the, the novel in, you know, from the screenplay. It was still woefully short for a novel. And so I wrote a, you know, a complete sequel that continues the story and takes it in a slightly different direction. And then, then I thought my dad and I had written a, something kind of similar when this didn't work that also involved a genetics uh, program in a prison, although it's set in Alaska, it's totally different characters. I thought, well, that could work as a sequel. It's I'll bring in some of the characters from the first two and introduce new ones. And and so when I had three of these, I submitted them as like one book to various publishers. And ironically, Ingram Elliott came back and said, no, we we see them as short, you know, go back to your original short because we do very well with these 
these I, IE snaps books. I mean, they're, they're really like paperbacks. So you can read them on one, on one flight. So that's, uh, this, you know, the stories, the sequels uh, do build on, on the first two. And the fifth one returns to Morgan, the same, the original character and first person narration. So, you know, I wanted to bring it all full circle. Sure. Now, when you're talking about the, the aging process, the, so your, your people are incarcerated, they're, they're in prison. This is a pilot program and they're genetically altered and aged up however long their sentence is. So as let's say somebody goes in, they're convicted for murder, they get put into they put get put into prison for twenty five years. They get altered so that they're almost instantly twenty five years older and then they're let out. What kind of research did you do on the genetics side to make that plausible? Or did you do you have do you get into that excuse me, do you get into that very much at all in the in the book? Not really. I mean, we, when we wrote the script and when I wrote the book, I thought, you know, I, it's sort of like time travel stories. There are some that spend 20 minutes explaining how it works. And there are others that just sort of wave their hand and say, but <laughs> your mind will blow if I try to explain it. Just, just walk through the portal or whatever. So, I mean, we do explain it a bit and there and they're, and it's a capsule that that you glide on, on sort of on a little monorail and and we introduce some real and some fake rays that come in but i didn't want to make it a high tech you know uh non-fiction study in in genetics because first of all i'm not anywhere near smart enough to to do that and i didn't and it really wasn't the point of the story i mean it's it's the point is definitely to to show what happens when you're 23, you're wrongly arrested for murder, you're among the first to go through this terrifying, immoral program, and he is sentenced to 40 years. Um, but I, on the other hand, I didn't write a want to write a movie that I mean a a book that's you know like Cocoon Three. So <laughs> so uh, I thought you know uh, it's bad enough that I'm is in my 60s. I didn't want my character to be. So he yeah. manages to escape halfway through. So he's 43. But it's still, you know, traumatic. I mean, it was ironic for me to be writing how horrible it was for him to be 43. And I'm thinking, oh, if only. <laughs> right. If only, if only I was. It's but, funny because uh, I, I read the description of this and I hear you talking about it. And the, fir the first couple of things I think about are Demolition Man and The Fugitive. Well, because that's exactly right. There's there's pieces that are similar. I mean, not little not, Logan's run, yeah. And so you've got this, you know, like you said, there's a there's a, a thing that happens at the prison. He gets out, he's escaped, and then he's got to work with the person that put him away to figure out what's happening. I thought that was an interesting twist. I haven't gotten very far into the book yet, but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what that dynamic does because it's it's there's a there's a not necessarily a trope but there's this there's this piece of storytelling when you have to work with your mortal enemy in order to accomplish a goal that i think gives uh gives some stories 
an added layer of drama that you don't get if you're just hanging out with your buddies and we're going to go down and, and fix a problem or whatever. Now you have to work with somebody who's completely at odds with you. And I would imagine that that's kind of fun to write. Absolutely. I mean, certainly it, it's been done, and but it works for all the reasons you just mentioned. Just as a side note, by wild coincidence, I totally agree with the movies you compared it to. That, But uh, literally half an hour before speaking to you, I actually was in contact with one of the producers of Demolition Man, who's, who's you know, taking a look at the project Fine. because I said it's so much, you know, so much like it. Um, but yeah, those kind of, I mean, it's classic, you know, a fish out of water or, you know, two people who shouldn't get along and don't at first. I mean, the FBI agent, Janine Price is, I, I kind of think of her as, you know, Sandra Bullock in the beginning of Miss Congeniality. She's, mm. she's kind of rigid and by the book. The last thing she wants in her life is this, this escaped convict, you know, who's kind of bursting into her life because he has nowhere else to turn. All his contemporaries have, you know, started to are shying away from him because he's he's not the same person anymore. Plus, he's on the run, and so he has nowhere to turn but to her. The only thing he has going for him is that she hates the time lock program as much as he does, and he's eventually able to show her that there's something terribly wrong with the program. And that's why a lot of people are being knocked off, including the man who he supposedly killed, which he didn't. So, yeah, it's fun fun to follow that, that kind of arc. And that definitely continues in the sequel. No. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. When we get back, I want to talk about response to the book, because you're talking about, you know, you've got a producer that's receptive of it. Ingram and Elliot was, was high on it. Let's uh, let's get into response and and a couple of other questions that I've got on the other side of this. We will be right back, continuing our conversation with Peter Burke right after this. Don't go away. Our transmitters are made from hand wavium. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Oh my goodness, that Jason is probably I think the hardest question you're going to ask. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. That's a good question, though. That's an interesting question. Question. That's a great question. Count on Sci-Fi for me to be there asking all of the questions. Um, it's another great question. These are all really good questions. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi for me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Good morning, multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 central, only on Sci-Fi for me TV. Back live from the bunker. Don't forget, we've got uh, Good Morning Multiverse. Thanks for watching Sci-Fi No, hold on. TV. Don't do that. All right, there's my one mistake for the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you over there. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's, it's that kind of day, I guess. All right. We are talking with Peter Burke. He is the co-author, along with his father, Howard of the book Time Lock. It is a science fiction futuristic crime thriller type of story where uh, people are aged up as part of their prison sentence. Now, 
Peter, let me let me ask you this because this is uh, this is a, a question in the chat from Death Angel Shadow. I'm curious if the antagonists believe this process alters the mind, rendering the guilty more docile, or if it's more of a punishment that you're losing years on your life. Maybe both. So you were talking about how this is is seen in the book. The people that are advocating for this, it's it's supposed to be a deterrent. You know, oh, well, you know, you're going to get locked up in here and all of a sudden you're going to lose 20 years instantly. And you have people in the real world who stop and, and say, you know, we're we're too easy on our incarcerated guests. You know, they get three hots in a cot and, and, you know, they've got a roof over their head and they're taken care of on our dime. But you've got this thing now where they're going to get all of that time served in a very short amount of time. I would imagine from the psychology standpoint of it, that's really hard on a person because you're just now losing not only, you know, the fact that you're 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 losing your freedom, but you're also losing all of those years of potential productivity and life experience and all of that because you come out 40 years older after a few months you're going to be you're going to be dealing with everything so much differently because of of how everybody else responds to you did did you did you take into account any of that from the from a psychological standpoint of what kind of impact this would have on people well, sure, because it, it has that exact impact on on our main hero, Morgan Everly. He experiences it firsthand, and he didn't even deserve any punishment that, to add to his you know situation. Uh, but yeah, it's mainly meant as a deterrent, and obviously it's horrible for the prisoners. Uh, but you know, some deserve sympathy, some don't. But we don't really go into that so much as. Um, the fact that it it does work for a while. I mean, crime is dramatically reduced, and it starts out just in one trial program in Maryland that is unfortunately where Morgan is is sentenced. But eventually, by later in the book, it's it's the you know the law of the land everywhere. But there are a lot of people who think it's immoral and wrong. And in fact, it's a, a large group of protesters that, that ironically saves Morgan because they break into the prison while he's going through his time lock processing. And during the brief amount of time that they shut it down, he and a couple of others managed to escape, which is why he doesn't get the full 40 years. But, you know, a lot of the book is, is him dealing with you know, suddenly being older, I mean, he rides a motorcycle and he tries one of his, you know, kind of youthful dismounts and falls right on his behind. And, you know, some of it's lighthearted, some of it's very depressing because he's lost not only 20 years of his life for a crime he didn't commit, but the best 20 years. He's... Yeah. But but again, we didn't want to make it, you know, a tragedy. Uh, so... There is the, the lighter side, and there is an odd benefit to it by the end of the book. I don't want to go into every detail, but he actually, there are points in the book, when we first meet him, he's a little lost. He's extremely bright. He's a, a good person, but he's 
kind of been drifting and he's not sure what to do with himself and he's not really able to commit to a relationship and he's just something of a loner and the odd uh, impact of of time lock is that it matures him not just physically but he starts to you know feel more grounded especially as he becomes more involved with with janine uh somebody he probably would have found too intimidating or not you know be ready to commit to right so it, there are some positive outcomes and there's there is the possibility that well i won't go into it but the sequel <laughs> might change everything for him um so yeah the psychology of it was really what began the whole thing for us is how would it be for somebody to go through this now you talk about it with with it being first person and and you look at uh i saw i saw something the, uh this morning uh some people are now talking about wanting to do more in black and white uh, in terms of productions and and that sort of thing and and i'm thinking to myself this kind of a story you know it's a murder mystery it's a crime thriller yeah you've got the science fiction element but being told first person like this, you could almost put this in a noir setting, maybe. Would it work for something like that if you were to if you were to adapt it and and not necessarily you know you wouldn't put it back in the forties, but that kind of approach, that kind of tone and style, I think probably could work for something like this, maybe. Hey, you're hired. You're the director. Now all we need is a cast. I, no, that's a great, great area. Uh, that could work. Listen, I mean, at this point, if somebody wants to do it with hand puppets, you know, I mean, I'm open to, to getting this off the ground in any form. But I like that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it can go in many, many directions. Uh, but as I keep dwelling on, the one thing I wouldn't want to lose is is you know, I don't want it to be a tragedy or, or depressing. Right. I mean, the concept sounds depressing, but ultimately everything kind of works out and and the bad guys, you know, I mean, it's it's not meant to be a, something that people you know, end up in tears over at yeah. all. Well, and and it's interesting that you say that because there are there are a number of people uh, you, you talk about oh, the last you know, five, ten years of storytelling. There's been a lot of, we want to subvert expectations, you know, the, the subversion movement. And there are a number of authors who have kind of pushed back on that, and they say, no, 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 we need superversive, you know, just kind of flip the script a little bit. We need stories of hope. We need stories where the good guy wins and beats the bad guy. And there's a clear delineation between the hero and the villain, and it sounds a little bit like you're approaching it that way from from the standpoint of, you know, it's not going to be nihilistic. It's going to be something that gives us a little bit at the end where maybe there's a little positive. Is is did that ever come into the plan when you're when you're writing this? Was there a conscious effort to get away from all of the depressing 
everything is bad, everything's falling apart, the whole world is a dumpster fire type of approach that we've been seeing from a lot, from a lot of different places. Yeah, because that's not the way my dad and I saw the world, and that's not... We wrote things that we would want to see, and first and foremost, we wanted this to be fun. I mean, it's, you know, we weren't shooting... I think the idea is boldly original, and again, it's my dad's, not mine, so I can say that. Um, but beyond that, you know, we weren't trying to bend the rules or do anything, you know, contrary to I mean, we wanted a good, almost old-fashioned, you know, up. we've seen it many times, you know, technology run amok and, and, and all of that. I, I certainly have no illusions that this is the first time that kind of story has been told. I mean, right. Colossus or, you know, there've been a million of them, but they always seem to work. And that's, that's what we wanted here, you know, as seen through the eyes of, of somebody who does go through a tremendous change. But, you know, the bad guys are clearly bad. There are a couple of surprises that maybe people wouldn't expect, but, you know, I wouldn't say that there's, I mean, it's, it's just meant to be a fun you know, adventure. So Ingram, Ingram Elliott gets on board with this. They, they like how, how the, the story is structured. They like the, the story that you're telling. What other kind of response have you gotten from people? I'm, I'm assuming that you had beta readers. You had some people who, who have read through the whole thing and giving you notes. What kind of reaction are you getting from this? I mean, just starting to get a few, a handful of reviews, so I wouldn't want to speculate too much. They've all been very positive. Uh, a lot of them, you know, have similar kind of concept, like, oh, this is, you know, it was very enjoyable. I read it in one sitting. I could see this as a movie or a series. A lot of people said that, uh, which obviously we're happy to hear. And I think, you know, it's it's... It's literally and figuratively like reading. You know, it's 220 pages, and we just want people to have a good time. And so far, that that's the case. I think one of the nicest things I've heard, including from a couple of my own relatives, who've said they don't really gravitate toward this kind of book or movie, as where I certainly do, but they don't. And they said, but they were unexpectedly pleasantly surprised to have enjoyed it. So that's all any author can ask for. You know, I'm, I have no pretenses that this is, you know, great literature. This is a, it's just a fun read that hopefully people will enjoy. That's if, if they get that out of it, I'm, I'm happy. And how far along are you with the second book? Oh, I, I finished the second, the third, and the fourth, and I'm halfway through the fifth, which is probably going to be the, the last one. And as I said, they're all a little different. And the third one in particular, you know, if I have the pleasure of speaking to you when that comes out, that one is really science fictiony, yeah. much more than this this one is. This one that, like I said, the technology is sort of glossed over. I mean, it's a sci-fi-ish premise, but it's only ten years in the future, and it's it's not anything you know particularly sci-fi beyond the concept but the third one is i mean if that were made into a movie it would be a lot of special effects i'll just put it that way and 
And, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that if and when that happens. Um, but they're all, they're all fun. And again, they're, they're, most of them are based on scripts I wrote with, with my dad. So there's a lot of good material to work on when, and he, you know, he really, he wrote a lot of things that, like I said, I would personally watch anyway, whether it's Columbo or any of those shows. He, he was, uh, approached at one point to maybe work on, on a Star Trek movie. Uh, not the one they ended up making, not the original motion picture, but this was like 73 before Star Wars. So they shelved the whole thing because nobody thought anybody would pay to see a science fiction feature. And that would have been, but, that would have been phase two at that point. Yeah. Um, but I remember being so excited because, you know, I love Star Trek. He brought me on the set of Star Trek when he was doing a Mission Impossible, and I, you know, I spent all day there just, you know, in awe as a twelve or thirteen year old. Nice. So that this this was always fun, and to be able to recapture some of that that enjoyment, you know, I feel like I'm collaborating with him again, you know, even though he's not here. Now, is the process on this one, given, given that you're working off of material that you, you and your dad developed, is your process any different from writing this one than it has been for any of the other books that you've written? Uh, not really. Obviously, it's a lot easier when you have material to, to you know, work with or steal from. In this case, you know, I've, that made it a lot easier. I, other... Uh, I wrote a kind of murder mystery, a political thriller that was also in first person. It just seems to be, you know, what I gravitate toward. Um, I love writing. I'm sure you do too. You know, it's, 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 it's a great um, release. I mean, you just can dive into your own imagination and, and take off to explore, you know, whatever worlds you want to visit. And, I love the whole process. And most of what I've written, frankly, hasn't gone anywhere uh, until this book. And, you know, I don't have that many years of writing left. But the one great thing about being a writer is you can be a, an old fogey like I am. And <laughs> if, if, the, if the writing is decent and the book is good, nobody really cares. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm not, you know, trying to be an athlete or something at this advanced age. Well, and and with the with the recent information that came out on the whole thing with uh, with Simon and Schuster, the fact that a lot of these best-selling novels are selling, you know, twelve, fifteen copies, I guess we've all got a shot, right? It's it's uh, it, the 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 playing field is a little bit more level now, but also we've got you know the indie crowd has has really taken off in the last few years you know the crowdfunding model the kickstarter indiegogo substack um you, you know amazon's got your their create space where you can do print on demand and and that sort of thing so the opportunities for getting self-published and and getting out in front of people have have multiplied the different ways that you can do it when you got in touch when 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 you made the deal with ingram was there discussion on what what kind of discussion did you guys have on how to get the book out? What's what's the distribution plan here? Because it's available in ebook and paperback. Where where can pe people find it? Um, 
yes, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, physical bookstores. Um, yeah, they they've been doing this a long time, and and it's not that I was adverse to self publishing. I certainly looked into it, um, but they came back. I mean, they're a traditional publisher, and certainly that had a great deal of appeal. And they came back. I remember there were two publishers who contacted me within days, and this is after weeks and weeks and weeks of, you know, just sending out query letters and all, all of that. And the, the other one said, yeah, this seems really interesting. Uh, we'll send you a contract. And Ingram Elliott came back with like five pages of notes, all, you know, good, productive, right? Uh, you know, exceptionally helpful notes. I mean, they really had taken the time. I don't think the other one had even, you know, read past page one. Mm -hmm. So I knew I had found the home and, and I entrusted them. They know everything about marketing, which I'm helping with too, because I have a PR background, but it's a little weird to be promoting yourself. So I've, <laughs> I've done it, but yeah. it's strange, but I, I, I feel like I'm doing it for my dad less for me, but they, they have distribution in place and they've been, they've been great. We'll see what happens, but. They're wonderful to work with. I remember having a conversation with uh, with Ann Crispin before she died, and you're talking about how the landscape in traditional publishing has changed to the point where the on the marketing and promotion side of things, authors really have had to step up and start doing a whole lot more on their own. Where you know the publisher, the publishing companies, if you're Stephen King, the publishing companies are going to put some money out to uh you know to promote the book but if you're if you're you know lower tier you got to do a lot yourself <clears throat> and so you've got a pr background you'll understand this i i think it's interesting to to watch in the social media landscape how many authors are out there yes they're promoting their work on the one hand, and they're doing their, you know, hey, my book is out, here's my cover reveal, I'm going to be doing a book signing, yada, yada, yada. But then on the same, on, on the same account, they are, let's say, behaving badly. You know, you've got a lot of, a lot of rhetoric, whether it's political or ideological or just, just plain rude. And I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what? You're kind of sabotaging your own marketing plan if you're going to attack your potential market <clears throat> why don't yeah. you just use your account to promote your work and and stay out of everything else it almost seems like you're kind of self-defeating at that point have, have you have you run into that where <clears throat> what you know you're promoting your book do you have you have you found yourself self-censoring on social media in order to make sure that you, we're going to focus on the book and we're not going to talk about anything else. How hard is that? Uh, no, I haven't had for one reason, which is I don't really do social media. And I know that sounds bizarre <laughs> oh. from a PR person, but you're a uh, smart Ingram man. Elliott, Ingram Elliott does all of that. I told them, first of all, they never asked me to promote it. They were happy to hear that that I would because I had a PR background, but I mean, I told them, I said, I'm old school uh, PR, you know, in, in my uh, agency, Hot Ice Media, my partners handle social media. 
I'm aware of it. I deal with it, but I don't post things or anything. It's just not my, you know, my area of expertise. So I don't run into that, but I certainly know what you mean. I've seen a lot of people do it. I've seen clients, not necessarily authors, just brands and, you know, do that exact same thing. They're insulting half the people they're, they're trying to sell to. And I'm, I have to tell them, you know, guys, what are you doing? This is, you know, why would you do that? This, so now I, you know, the only marketing I do is, is reaching out to, you know, magazines or newspapers or whatever. And I try to be as humble as possible. Cause as I said, it's embarrassing enough that I'm pitching my own work, but, but I make it clear. This is about my dad. So, you know, I'm glad to not be in that, you know, social media <laughs> trap that you're absolutely right. It happens yeah. all the time. Well, and death angels talking about self aggrandizing. I I'm, I'm with you. I have a tough time pitching myself. You know, I can come in here and I can, I can make the joke. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've got 34 years in media. I know how the sausage is made. And I tell people, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. And, you know, I can, I can kind of, you know, that self deprecating humor about just how experienced I am and how much of an expert I am. But I don't mean it. I, I, I don't, I have a real tough time really seriously putting out there that I know what I'm doing. And unless I'm talking about my team, I'm talking about the people that are contributing here and less about me. So I totally get where you're coming from on that. It's tough to do sometimes, but, but at the same time, if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? And then, then you're kind of in a catch 22 there where you either, you either talk really well about yourself or nobody else is going to. So well, I know so many people who almost only talk about themselves and I work with some of them, some of them are clients or whatever. And I think constantly, please don't ever let yourself become like that. You know, people who you can tell them you were, you know, trapped in an elevator uh, for, for three days and their only response is, oh, I was trapped in an elevator once and they're immediately on to what happened to them. They couldn't care less. Right. Uh, uh, you and there are a lot of people like that I hope to never be like that and if my dad weren't involved with this project I probably wouldn't be doing much of this because it, it's just not my nature but I'm happy to be quiet and sit in a room alone and write but for my dad I'll talk about this all day long so yeah. well and I've said for me it's it's much I think this show in particular is much better when I have a guest because then I can put the focus on the guest and it's not about me ranting for an hour about whatever and who knows if anybody's interested in what I think anyway. So I'm always looking for those experiences where I can have somebody on and we can talk about what you guys are doing out there in the creative space and, and whatnot. And, and I can just kind of sit back and and bask in the glow, as it were, and, and let y'all do the heavy lifting to talk about what you're working on. <laughs> But on the other hand, you you obviously are doing an amazing job. I mean, you're seen well, around you. the world. Your show is great, and you know you're you know you're an expert, and people obviously are responding to you. So you you, should, you have every right to brag. It's people who have no right to brag who brag that that are <laughs> really you know the problem. But um, no, I mean, you know, I could talk to you all day, not just about this, but you know, I'd love 
love to know your take on you know anything sci-fi because I'm a I'm a fan myself. So um, anyway, yeah. So what's the timetable here? The first book is out. <clears throat> excuse me. The second book is coming out when? I don't know. Probably it probably will be a, a year. They they don't produce they don't publish that many books a year. Probably six or seven, and. I mean, we haven't really nailed it down. I'm sure they want to see how this one does first, but it's ready to go if 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 and when. But I would say a year for sure. Okay. And in the meantime, you know, I'll be running around trying to drum up interest in, uh, you know, in a TV or movie version. I, I love your film noir angle. <laughs> Maybe somebody is listening to this. So give us a call, and they'll hire both of us. You never know. Stranger things have happened. Yeah. So the book has a presence on Facebook, uh, Time Lock, and I, I think it's just facebook.com slash Time Lock, and then also over on Instagram, Time Lock Novel, uh, the publishing company, in, IngramElliot.com, where you can find information about the book. It is called Time Lock. It is now available in paperback and ebook. Uh, at various different outlets, and of course Ingram Elliott also has their own uh, Twitter presence. So, uh, so check all of that out. And of course, we'll have links to all of this in our notes. Peter Burke, thanks very much for being here, sir. I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and good luck with the book. And yeah, definitely when uh, when the second one comes out, we'll have you back. We'll talk about that one, and and who knows, maybe we'll rotate you into the to the PR discussions anytime we have stuff about wait no why would you do that no wait no you know our our train wreck episodes right <laughs> yeah. I, i'd be thrilled thank you jason so much i really appreciate it all right thank you sir and thanks to all of you for being here we are still slowly continuing our trek toward episode 500 and i have locked in the date december 30th we're going to have our 500th episode here live from the bunker. We're very excited about that. We're going to do some things. You never know. We're going to make some announcements then and have us a little party like it's 1999 or something. But in the meantime, you can uh, catch us on all the different social platforms. Uh, we're on different video platforms. Uh, we do want to encourage you to connect with us over on Odyssey and Rumble. Rumble, we got to get our numbers up to 100 so we can start live streaming over there. we got a newsletter you can sign up for. All sorts of fun stuff going on over here. So that's going to be it for today. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow we've got Good Morning Multiverse at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central. And then we're back all next week to do this all again. Busy broadcast week. Next week is booked up. The week after that is getting booked up. We're going to have a busy November. So uh, stick around for that. Share the links, share the channel, tell people about us, leave a comment, send us an email, all that good stuff. And we will be back with uh, Money Talk on Monday uh, with Matt and Dan. In the meantime, remember, there are four lights. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 